Hey everybody, welcome back to the show, Rapping with Reef Bum. I'm your host, Keith Berkelhammer. Thanks everybody for joining us. Carlos23, thanks again, man. See ya. Um, got Terrence Little Ocean, Battle OCR, John Reef from Vermont. What's up? Fellow Vermonter. So uh, today, I have the pleasure of welcoming Cindy Nichols, a.k.a. Reef Girl. And Cindy, hey Cindy. So Cindy got her first reef tank in 2011, and she was given a neglected tank and brought it back to life. So following several nano tanks, she had a Red Sea Reefer XL425 for three years. And we're going to see a little video clip of that, uh, that old tank. And she had that for three years, and she, she currently has an innovative marine Nouveau 40 called, that she calls Mollywood. She'll, she'll explain that to us. That was set up in October 2018 to house her saltwater tank bred mollies. And she's, she's got a new tank on the horizon, a, a 300-gallon tank that we'll, uh, we'll also talk about. Cindy has over 2,000 followers on Instagram and nearly 6,000 subs on her YouTube channel. And she also has a live stream show. I've got another live streaming <laughs> host on my show here. So, Cindy, welcome to the show. Thanks a lot, Keith. I have to say I'm a little nervous sitting on this side of the live stream chair. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's, 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 it's odd. I mean, I've, I've, um, I've been asked to be a guest on, on a fellow uh, live streamer's show. I haven't uh, done that show yet, but uh, I don't know. It's, it's kind of, um, it, it, I'm sure it'll be, well, actually, I have been on a, on a show. It was a couple of years ago, but um, I don't know. I feel like Right, as a host, maybe you're a bit more in control because you're the one that's kind of guiding the show and asking the questions, and you being the guest, you're not exactly sure what I'm going to ask you, right? <laughs> don't know what's coming. <laughs> you don't know what's coming. Yeah, I've only Just had... Just like reef keeping. <laughs> have you ever uh, had a guest, like, kind of uh, say before the show, hey, can you kind of shoot me the questions before the show just so I know what's going on, or has anybody kind of touched base with you to, to, to make sure that they're not going to get blindsided by, by you, or... Uh, not really, because the format of our live stream is a little different, where I, I throw up the live stream, and anyone who's interested in coming on live just requests the link, and then they can come on live and talk and show their tanks and all that kind of a thing. So there's no formal structure. It's very, very casual. A lot of people go in and out. Sometimes I sit and talk for 15 minutes before someone spares the audience from having to listen to me the whole night. <laughs> and comes in and it's really cool because um the the chat is very interactive a lot of questions um for the guests about what they're seeing on the screen and um, i'm slowly getting a little bit better at managing the chat and paying attention to it so that i catch things questions that people ask and it doesn't just scroll on by because it can happen pretty quickly as you know if there are a lot of viewers and they're active um, you can be scrolling up and down, making sure you didn't miss greeting anybody or anything like that, right? So it's it's a, it's a complicated job. I mean, we're you know, you, uh, I feel like we wear multiple hats, right? We're we're the the host, Definitely. the host of the show, the moderator, the technical person. I mean, I've got no help here, and I don't I don't think you mm -hmm. you do either when you're doing the live stream. So no. it's kind of like you're looking at multiple screens and multiple things, and you're keeping your fingers crossed that nothing's going to uh, get messed up and. You, yeah. you try to you try to make sure uh, that all the viewers are are um, you know you're addressing questions and what have you, but it's not it's not an easy job, but it's fun. 
it's it's a lot it of fun. fun. Yeah. There's, and don't you find when it's over, there's this adrenaline? Yeah. That takes a while to sort of wear off. And for me, I try to end it at 11, but I'm mostly unsuccessful and it'll go to 12. One time it went to one and I start at nine. So Whoa. the one that went to one o'clock, I couldn't come down and, and get sleepy until around 4 a.m. <laughs> well, wow. you know, that's one of the things that happens that I wasn't really thinking about is, is this rush that you get from, I guess, having to be on your toes, right? Having to be ready for anything that might happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. But I, I love it. I, I really, really enjoy it. It's, it is a lot of fun. It is enjoyable, but, um, you're a night owl because there's no way I, I can make it up that I late. Uh, there is no way. I mean, I get up pretty much like four thirty every morning and, and by, uh, I don't know, by the end of the show tonight, you know, after eight o'clock, I'm pretty much ready to hit the sack. <laughs> well, I spent eight years getting up at 5 a.m. so I could catch a 7 a.m. train to work um, in downtown Toronto in finance. And I am a night owl. And I couldn't, for the life of me, get to bed before midnight. So it was constant sleep deprivation. And now I don't have that problem. I just wake up when I wake up. Unless I have an appointment, I'm, you know, just whatever my body clock tells me when i've had enough sleep <laughs> yeah no i i used to live in connecticut and commute into new york city and it was a four-hour round trip commute every day and mm -hmm. that was i did that for about 10 years i was the last uh we, my wife and i just kept moving further and further out of the city so my commute became longer and longer but uh yeah i, I was getting up very very early for that commute and i just couldn't break the habit so i i'm just i'm still getting up the you know the same time. <laughs> Good for you. So, folks, um, yeah, Cindy and I are, are um, certainly interested in, in taking your questions. We're going to have a conversation. I, I've got a bunch of questions for Cindy, and I'm kind of curious about what she's up to in terms of reef keeping. I know, Cindy, you've been uh, involved in a, in a move in terms of houses, so that always complicates things. I got a, I got a kind of a funny tank move story myself when we get to that point in the show, but. Uh, I don't know. Let's let's kind of start off with with your uh, history in, in this hobby. How did you get started in reef keeping? Uh, friends of ours had fish tanks, and the first fish I had were goldfish, and they were in a pond. And I realized when the fall rolled around, they had to come indoors, so I brought them indoors, and that went on for several years. So we had to get bigger and bigger tanks because, of course, goldfish get big. And that just kind of led to more freshwater tanks. And we had friends who had freshwater tanks, one of which was a six-foot, 125-gallon piranha tank. And their daughter oh. went to school and wanted a Nemo tank to go with her for her dorm room at university. So they got her a saltwater tank. It was a 30-gallon tall with no sump. And... Um, she took that to school, had it for, I think, two years, and understood it was too much work. So she brought it home. Her parents got tired of looking after it. We happened to be there. And I said, oh, you, it looks like you got a saltwater tank here. And they said, yeah, do you want it? And it was like, well, wait a minute. And my first encounter with saltwater was when we went to a restaurant that had a saltwater tank as a room divider, mm. and there was a flame hawk fish in there. Uh, those are and one of my favorite fish. Me too. I just actually and, picked up two more for my new tank. Yeah, I'm. I'm going to be getting at least one, maybe more, if I have, if I feel I have the territory space for them. 
And this thing would come over and watch you when you were eating. And it fascinated me so much. I spent, I don't know how long looking things up because this was pre-internet. So this goes back a long way. So when I had this chance to get a saltwater tank, I went, okay, I'm up for that. And it came with a tiny clown. This tiny clown was just over an inch long. It was, it was just a, a percula. And that clown was three years old. So that tells you something about the conditions that clownfish was living in. And through various testing and things like that, I soon learned how bad that tank was. The salinity was 1.038 because they used one of those floating hygrometer things yep. you know, that also has a thermometer. And, and they told me it was okay to use tap water to make the salt water. And it was just a whole learning experience. So then I got into coral because I wanted to get something for this little guy to host in once I got the water okay. Mm -hmm. And when I took pictures into the store of this tank covered with a blanket of beautiful purple on everything, well, it was cyano mm. that was a quarter of an inch thick in some places. Wow. I had no idea that was bad. I just thought it was pretty. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it was a real eye-opener, but uh, just, you know how it goes. You, you look at doing something you look into what it takes and you learn and then you take the next step and the next step and the next step and so i traded the little guy in i called him sid vicious because <laughs> every time i even looked into the tank he would jump for my face <laughs> and i just thought you know what i i can't even do anything in this tank so i took him to the fish store and they were quite happy to get him he always did remain stunted though mm. And then I started getting coral and other fish, and then it just blossomed from there. And um, I think at this point, the 300 will probably be my ninth tank that I'll be setting up. And at one point, I had four tanks um, going at the same time, including a 1.6-gallon Pico tank. Oh, wow. One of those little tiny Dymax. Yeah. And I, I had a pygmy hawkfish in there, the geometric um, uh -huh. hawkfish. Yeah. And I love, I think that was my favorite tank, actually. The 1.6 gallon tank? Yep. Was that difficult yeah. to keep because of the, uh, the size and the instability? Or did you just essentially use the, um, the water from the other tanks, more mature, uh, larger tanks, and just swapped out water every now and then? And um, I, That's basically what I did for water changes, yeah. was just swap out the water. I did test it. The main difficulty with that was keeping the water level up. Because there's a fair, there's still a fair amount of flow generated by the return pump, and the water level in the back chamber would drop really quickly. So it was essentially five or six ounces of water every single day I had to add of RODI water. And I had that tank until a house sitter neglected to top up the back, and it just melted away. Everything that was in there. Yeah, I mean, equipment-wise, what, what did you have in that tank? I'm assuming there was some sort of light over that uh, tank and what, maybe a little power head in there, but anything else? No, there's no power head. No there power was just head. A very, just a very, very tiny pump that came with it. Uh, filtration in the back chamber was just filter pads put down in the larger area, and then the other area had the pump in it, and there was no room for anything else. And I had a little bit of sand, uh, one rock, and just some mushrooms. Um, things grew in that tank just out of nowhere. Hmm. I had a beautiful, um, I didn't know at the time, Calerpa started to grow. It must have come in on a frag. Yeah. And it was 
quite beautiful. It just flowed a little bit in the flow of the water from the return pump. And at one time I had an orange honeycomb sponge grow on the return nozzle. And it got to be about the size of a golf ball before it let go and disappeared. And I didn't see it after that. But uh, it, it was fascinating. And the sun would come in and shine on it. I just got one of those really cheap, small LED bars. They're about six inches long. Yep. They cost around 30 bucks. Yep. Because just growing softies, mushrooms and whatever, I really didn't need anything else. And it's cool. That's a really cool story. Uh, Ira Robert, Roberts is uh, saying, not reefing related, but interested in what Cindy did in finance. I also work in finance. I was in international tax. I worked for PwC, and PwC, along with a lot of other companies, sends employees around the world to work. And so I was in charge of those employees, making sure they got their tax returns done and just managing all of that setup. So, yeah, that's what I did. All right, now getting back to the Pico tank, because I'm, I'm a little interested here because I have a, uh, I have a tank. I don't know exactly how many gallons it is. It's about yay big. <laughs> it's got one of those <laughs> slanted uh, fronts. And, um, you know, I've been so busy with, with my new tank build. I'm just, um, I haven't thought about, about that little tank, but I'm just kind of like wondering, there's, there's no place in terms of a, um, you know, built-in filter box or, or any place for, for plumbing. So I'm just kind of trying to think a little bit more about that. And, and, uh, yeah, any advice from you, Cindy, in terms of how I can get that thing up and running, in terms of uh, minimal equipment or anybody watching that has any tips for, I guess you would call it a Pico tank, right? What's the definition of a Pico tank? How many gallons? Uh... I don't really know. I always thought of, uh, of that as maybe less than five. Yeah, this is definitely less that than five. Just, just in my own imagination, yeah. anywhere up to five gallons. This Dimax was 1.6 and it came as a kit. So it came with everything you needed. Um, except a lid, and I just had various jankety things that I would put on top, mainly to control condens like evaporation, yeah. so that the condensate would just go right back in. Um, but as far as advice, I would say um, try and stay on top of the water quality, and don't expect that you're going to grow SPS in there. Yeah, I know. Um, you know, be and and just it. And it depends what you want to keep in it. Um, I could totally see a Pico tank with like an anemone in it, as long as the water quality and the light was good enough. Yeah, I want to. I want to put um, a couple of clownfish with maybe an anemone or 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 something else that the clownfish would host. But sure, yeah, yeah. yeah. That uh, that's an interesting thought. So I'll have to think more about that. Mm hmm. <laughs> so well, rem remember when I had that tank, I really didn't know what I was doing. So maybe that's part of it. Yeah, but you see, I'm going to probably... I wasn't overthinking. I, as right? I was about to say, I'll probably think too much about it, overthink it, and uh, yeah, it'll end up being a disaster, but uh, <laughs> I don't know. We got, I got enough on my plate right now as it is, so we'll, we'll see. Yeah. Maybe in the springtime. Um, what's uh, the comment here? Uh, I cannot pronounce the screen name. Uh, itch of the yo stuff. <laughs> Drill it and plumb it into your system. Ah, oh, there you go. <laughs> we used to joke about creating a 50-gallon sump for this 1.6-gallon Pico and just putting it on a table, and then a cloth or a, a skirt around the table would hide a 50-gallon sump underneath. <laughs> but I don't know. I think the big problem you would have would be balancing the flow. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Scott McMillan, what about a small canister? Yeah, maybe. 
that, that could uh, potentially work in terms of filtration. So, so uh, Cindy, I mentioned that we um, we have some some video of your old <clears throat> uh, Red Sea reefer, and I think I want to show this, and and it'll be kind of a good jumping off point for a discussion in terms of how you like to keep a reef tank. Even though this uh, tank is no longer up and running, I think there's a lot of things in this video that are interesting and um, I have questions about. So let's um, let's run this. I, I can't recall how long is the uh, the video that you shot. It also includes your 90 gallon tank too, right? It does. I think it's around four minutes, maybe okay. maybe less. And it's got some pleasant background music too. <laughs> yeah, got to do the music. I think um, maybe we'll we'll run it, let it play, and then we'll um, come back and we'll talk about it. Versus you trying to narrate over it. You want to do that? Sure. All right. Yeah, sounds sounds All good. All right, I'm gonna roll the I'm gonna roll the clip.
And we are back. So that Red Sea Reefer was one heck of a tank, Cindy. Congrats on that. Thanks. Thank you, I think. <laughs> that must have been yeah, tough to that quite, must have been tough to break down. It it was, but ultimately when we decided to move it was largely to be closer to family because we have a new grandson and he's a year old now. And at the time we were thinking about moving, we knew he was on the way. And um, it was the perfect opportunity for me to get the big tank, the big girl tank. I mean, I'm in my 60s. If I don't do it now, I am never going to do it. That was my thinking. So we just went for it. And it took me months to get up the nerve to start taking the reef apart. Yeah. And I've done a couple of videos about that process. There's a video series on my channel. And part of that talks about what kickstarted it. And it was basically the age old problem. Things were starting to fight with each other. <clears throat> I didn't have the space I needed. And unfortunately now everything's in a smaller, tighter space, but that's only temporary. Um, so it took roughly two months to move everything. Wow. But much of that was compacted into the last two weeks or so. So did you um, sell off a lot of it? Did you keep a lot of it? I kept you everything. You kept everything. Wow. Yeah, except for frags that I took of my Acropora that were vulnerable to breaking apart during moving. And I was thinking that if I laid them down in a tote of water and they slid, they would be smithereens. So I decided to trim them ahead of time, and I made frags that I took to the uh, the LFS. And that's the only thing I sold out of that tank. Everything else went with me, including the cursed green wrasse, which is not coming with me to the big tank. It's uh, it's getting taken to the LFS where it can be in a frag tank and eat all the pests it wants and not be flipping corals through the sand. <laughs> so what was the, um, what was your success ratio in terms of fish and corals in terms of what was in that tank versus what you held on to? What percent survived? Um, of the fish, they, there was a mass fish death, but it wasn't related to the move. And of the coral, pretty much 99.9% .9 survived. All right. So, that's uh, that's really interesting, and and uh, I mentioned at the beginning of the show that I had a, uh, a a story in terms of moving tanks, and it was not easy. It was um, it, I'm going to tell the story real quickly, and then I want to dig into your 99.9 percent .9 survival rate in corals because I think that's amazing. But um, yeah, my wife and I were living in the uh, in New York City, and we bought a house out in the suburbs in Westchester County in New York. So I had a I think it was a 90 gallon reef tank. In uh, it was a five floor, um, five. I think we we're on the fifth floor. <clears throat> it was an elevator building. But anyway, so we we had a closing, uh, a set date for the closing on the house, and we had a set date to move out of the the apartment. And it was pretty much, you know, on consecutive days. We're we were set to move out of the apartment and move into the um, to the new house within a couple of days. So my parents 
you know, had a house out in Westchester. And so we, the plan was to, to spend the night at my parents' house and then move into the new house the next day. But I rented a U-Haul cargo truck to uh, facilitate the tank move. And so I had these uh, large buckets. I think they were uh, 50 gallon pails or what have you and some five gallon buckets. And, and you know, I, I put all the fish in, in, in a few of the five gallon buckets and the corals in the larger pails. And I had some heaters and I had some power heads all ready to rock and roll um, when we got out to Westchester. But uh, the funny part of the story was you know, I had, I had this uh, U-Haul all rented and lined up and, and it was in the, um, it was in Harlem in, in, in New York City is where the U-Haul place was. And we were in, in Midtown. And so my wife, um, God bless her heart, she, she ran up to Harlem for me to go grab the truck because I was in the middle of, of um, breaking down this reef tank. And, and uh, so I get this phone call and, and she's like, yeah, I'm up here at the rental place, <clears throat> but they won't give me the uh, the truck. They don't have your reservation. I'm like, what? If if you don't get this truck, then everything's gonna die. I was like, just take it. <laughs> so she grabbed the keys. I did have a reservation for some reason. This branch office, a U-Haul, wasn't uh, in sync with the uh, the home office in terms of U-Haul, and I was like, just grab it and she uh she grabbed the keys out of the guy's hand or something like that and and uh all i know is we didn't get in trouble for some reason i don't know what happened but we got the u-haul and anyway we got we got everything uh up to uh to westchester but i don't think the survival rate was that great in terms of the uh the fish i think did all right coral wise i'm not sure they uh they did okay you know i had the heaters and the power heads going at night plugged in from the garage. But what, what was your uh, secret to you know, the uh, success there in terms of that survival rate? I was lucky that I did not have to do it all in one day. That was the main thing. <clears throat> and I didn't realize it when I was creating it, but the fact that my aquascape was modular really made it possible. <clears throat> because the way I created it was in pieces so that I could create manageable pieces that I could move into the tank one piece at a time and build it in the tank from pieces that I created outside the tank. <coughs> Excuse me. And so because it was modular, I knew that I could take it apart piece by piece. And of course, by this time... So when you say modular, what do you mean by, uh, by modular? You, you kind of set it up in a way that was easy to break it down? Yeah. Um, the... The center structure wrapped around the overflow, and it was two pillars of rock. Originally, I, my plan was to make one pillar of rock, but I used Texas Holy Rock, which is so dense that I, I had 50 pounds of it in just two pillars wrapping around wow. the overflow. So because I realized really early on that there's no way I could lift that up, I made it in two pieces that sort of overlapped each other on an angle, and it didn't look like two pieces when it was in the tank, but I knew that it would come apart. I did have some coral growth bridging between the two pieces, but it was Montipora. They just came right apart. And one jack-o'-lantern um, leptoceris. <clears throat> then when it came to the outer structures, I had caves at the back, which were piles of rock. And they were separate from an arch at the front, 
So the arch went from the corner in to the base of the pillar on each side. It was roughly symmetrical. And then I had a bridge rock that went from the arch back to the top of the caves. So it was pretty much seven or eight pieces wow. of, of structure that just kind of fit together. Um, and uh, it was Tonga branch rock, for one thing, that I used for those arches. That's, that's, I, that stuff's hard to come by now. You can't, you can't get know, it. You can't I, get it. That's why I'm, I'm keeping it. And so it just was kind of lucky. So really, the fact that it was modular allowed me to take it apart piece by piece. The fact I didn't have to move all in one day allowed me to stretch it out over time for when I was ready, for when I could actually take my time and prepare what I had to do. And I had a plan. And the plan even went so far as figuring out that if I could move the stuff in tank water, I stood a better chance of survival. So in order to do that, I had to be ready with new salt water so the tank water I removed could be replaced when I was moving a piece. So that tank had like six water changes in the space of two weeks because, of course, I would take out 10 or 12 gallons, yeah. enough just to cover the structure in the Rubbermaid tote and replace that with new salt water. So I was making salt water, making RODI and salt water, and essentially doing water changes every time I moved a piece. The 90-gallon, I started cycling that tank in November of 2019. Wow. So, well, it was set up in November of 2019. It didn't actually start cycling until February of 2020. And so by the time I was ready to start moving pieces into it, it had been running and cycled probably for two months. How did you, um, <clears throat> how did you start the cycling process? What was your uh, method there? I took some sand from the Red Sea tank and I put it with new sand in the 90. And it's run on two canister filters. So I took some of the pond matrix from the sump of the Red Sea and put it in the canister filters along with some new pond matrix and some rubble rock and some other stuff. And also I had Ciparax in the Red Sea sump. And so I was able to take about half of the Ciparax and move that into the canister. And when I started the 90, I had one canister and then I decided to go with a second canister and I bought one that has a UV bulb in it, just nine watts. It's not going to do any level one or level two UV, but it, it, it would help, I felt. Yep. And so having the two canisters really helped as well. And then to put the sand in the tank, I placed large flat rocks in the areas where I knew my reef structure would have to sit so that I'd be able to get those pieces down below the sand and not have them resting on top of the sand. Yep. And so then I had those rocks in there as well. Um, so all of that combined, it did go through an ugly stage. I mean, uh, it did get algae, but I had mollies. Mm. So I put six or eight mollies in there and they just kept everything at bay. So, you know, yeah, you know, I, I, that's interesting. I've, I've never, um, I've never tried that. And, and, um, I, I guess mollies are brackish water fish, right? They, they can, uh, they're, they're real tough and they're great for cycling a tank. Yeah, I would never use a molly to cycle a tank. I would always put them in after the cycle yep. once I knew that the biology was yep. right. 
Um, because, I mean, you can cycle a tank without <coughs> using fish. Uh, but just to keep the, the algae under control during the phase when it was going to be algae. That's, that was the main reason I had them in there. And also to contribute fish waste, because that's the other part of moving a mature reef into a new system, is a mature reef has all of those biomes going on, um, and, and it's its own in, its own sort of ecological system. So to help get that jump started, um, having fish in there, I think, was a good idea because that way their waste product can contribute to it. And the other thing I did was early on in the cycle, if I did a water change on the Red Sea, I would bring the water over and put it in the 90 so that whatever was in there might also help. So the, the SPS, Montipora, you know, whatever you had in that tank, no die-off in that transfer? Just you had that luxury of being able to do it slow and, and, and staggered. Yeah. Yeah. I couldn't believe it. Uh, it. I was expecting RTN. There was nothing. Nothing. Until my fish death and I used ammo lock and I managed to kill a huge millipora colony and a couple of the other acros. Um, the tissue went white, but they're now coming back. So even with using ammo lock, uh, two months after I completed the move, uh, things still did not completely die off. That's incredible. So, uh, um, as of today, I've lost one torch, and I believe it's because of not enough light in the place that I had it, and one lobophilia, and I'm not sure why um, it started to recede. I moved it to a few different places, but eventually I lost it. Uh, but other than that, I've, and the Millipora colony I lost because of a stupid mistake I made, um, was nothing to do with the move. Um, it was astonishing. I, I would walk in there and look at that tank and it was like, I have no right for this to, to look so good. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was crazy. And it's not in my house. And for that, I have to thank my daughter for looking after it. And, and she knows enough now that she recognizes when something doesn't look quite right. So she'll get on FaceTime and show it to me. And then we talk about what the problem might be. And I have gone over to fix things if I've had to. But for the most part, she's been able to take care of that's, it. That's so, so valuable to have somebody that knows what they're doing in terms of you know, being a, an additional... Yeah. Uh, caretaker for the tank especially when you're on vacation I, I sort of freak out when I go on vacation uh, you know mm -hmm. it's, it's sort of like I almost don't look forward to it because I'm just going to be worrying too much but um, yeah. you know you, you got to just uh, do what you can in terms of having things uh, automated and, and have um, the person yeah. watching the tank kind of um, you know looped in in terms of looking for certain signs of things that will go wrong and to let you know mm -hmm. about that I'm just catching up with the chat here John Reefer uh, Vermont actually said that he um, is using mollies too, but he's the same. He's doing the same thing that you are. He he was using them to maintain the cycle, not to uh, cycle the tank, which is yeah. a, that's an important. Yeah. Great bearded reef. Hey, what's happening? Thanks for coming back to the live stream. Um, so let's let's just dig in a little bit, um, Cindy, in terms of how you like to uh, run a tank, and and maybe let's just specifically talk about the uh, the old Red Sea reefer, or or maybe these things apply to the ninety gallon as well, and what you have planned for the three hundred gallon tank. But in terms of lighting, what did you have over that tank? I went all out and I bought a Kessel AP seven hundred uh, because first of all, um, some who have watched the videos on my channel might know 
the tank was a gift from my husband for my 60th birthday. It was a surprise. <laughs> he bought wow. me this tank as a surprise. I had been talking about getting a bigger tank, and we had talked about what I was looking at and all of that, but I had no clue he was actually going to do this. And so we spent about two months getting everything ready. So he just did he, infrastructure he, did he just buy you the tank and then was kind of like, all right, I need you to help fill in the pieces, so to speak? He, he bought it from a place in Toronto, Aquarium Depot. Um, the uh, owner's name is Hussein, and great guy. And they delivered it. So the surprise was when he said, oh, come on out to the garage and you know, make sure you bring your phone. You're going to want to film this. I'm going, what? <laughs> and it was my birthday. Awesome. So I, mean, I was not expecting this. I knew it would be something. But we had talked a lot about ways to make it easier to run a tank. And that included especially transporting water that you need for both ATO and water changes. And I used to mix up my new salt water in a two-gallon um, milk bone, gravy bone, dog biscuit container. <laughs> I have about a dozen of those things. And it, they're perfect because they contain exactly two gallons. And that's what I would use. And lugging water up from the basement RODI, it was just really, really difficult and messy. So we came up with a system where we had a water mixing station in the basement with RODI and salt water and a system of pumps to get it up to the fish room. We turned a bedroom in our house into a fish room. Really? And so we, I was able to do kind of, I call them remote or, or um, kind of semi-automatic water changes where the salt water would get pumped into my sump directly from the basement. The RODI water would get pumped up to an, uh, an RODI reservoir I had beside the tank. And the water would get pumped out of my sump and go down um, through another drain and down into the basement. So we, we had it all set up to do that. And it was amazing. You know, I had this system where I would shut off the UV, the skimmer, and the ATO. I would turn on the pump out, pump water out. It would go down in the center chamber of the sump. Then I would turn that pump off, and I would turn on the salt water pump that was downstairs, underneath, kind of to the side of this room, and it would pump water back up to the right level. And then I would shut that off, and then turn the return... Oh, yeah, part of that was putting the return pump on the 10-minute feed mode because I had JBO return pumps, DCS 7000. And it was just, it was slick. I could do a, a 15 or 10 or 15-gallon water change in about 20 minutes. Yeah, I um, I have the same kind of mechanism plumbing setup myself. So this was all like hard plumb PVC pipe and all that sort of thing? No, no, it was all vinyl hose, oh, wow. half-inch vinyl hose. Wow. Yep. Yeah, I've um, I've always yeah. hard plumbed my um, tanks to the uh, to the sumps, and when I was in Connecticut, I did um, you know the tank, the display tank was in the living room, living room, and then down below in the uh, basement, the unfinished basement was all the um, you know the sump and all the other equipment. So I did, um, I just went for it. I hard plumbed it, and it took a long time, and it was complicated, and there were some kind of hairy moments because <laughs> you weren't you weren't sure whether or not you got that that real good solid connection that you were uh, hoping for. Always, but and there always are hairy moments. Yeah, but I, you know, 
I, I, I talked about it on my channel in terms of my, my latest new tank build. It, I think I put in 40 hours of work hard plumbing that uh, new tank to the, um, to the sump. It was, uh, it was a lot of work, but the reason why I wanted to put all that work in was because you know, I knew that it was going to be worth the effort and to make life easier in terms yeah. of water changes. So it was the exact same thing that yeah. you had um, you know, been thinking about. And maintenance is so important in this hobby. You got to stay, stay on top of it. You got to do it. And I think anything that yep. you can do to make it easier down the road, put in the time now to do that, yep. you know, work in terms of setting up whatever kind of plumbing roadmap you have um, in your head. Yep. And I think that's yep. just something that's very important. If, if you're in this hobby for the long haul, I think it's a great idea. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and the sump for the Red Sea, of course, is in the cabinet. So it was the external piping that had to go from there out the back of the cabinet down along the back of the tank. And he built a little bulkhead along the side of the room. We, <laughs> I do have a, a video and I think I've called it commitment <laughs> because it was drilling through the floors and through the walls to run these pipes. And that's when you know you're really committed is when you actually drill holes through the walls and floor of your house to run aquarium pipes. We also drilled holes through the windowsill or the, the window trim behind, sort of beside the tank, uh, right from the inside, right to the outside, <laughs> so that I could run outside air skimmer lines and for bubble scrubbing. So, you know, it, it is a commitment. You have to decide in your mind that you're going to do what it takes. And uh, when he finished um, restoring that room, you couldn't even tell that any of that had ever been there. Yeah, now, interesting. So, um, apparently, one of us has an echo. It might be me. But, um, yeah, chime in, folks, if, if you're still hearing that echo. I don't know what's going on with my... Audio here. You sound good to me, Cindy. But um, yeah. Anyway, getting back into the uh, into the conversation. Yeah, I think I think putting time in to do stuff is um, is is a great idea. Anything to make the work on this hobby less mm -hmm. is uh, is a beautiful thing. So so talk about your um, the way you typically supplement in terms of calcium and alkalinity what what uh what did you do with that red seed reefer what what do you um plan on do with the 300 gallon the new tank build uh i started out with the balling light method so i got the solutions or the chemicals i mixed up the solutions that's where i learned that you don't put calcium solution into a container unless that container can take the heat because Oh man, does that stuff get hot when you mix it? It's shocking. Um, so I just mixed the chemicals when I needed them based on what their directions were. I use a JPO DP4 dosing pump, which I've always used and which has been flawless for me. And that's what I did. And I set up the dosing system in the right-hand side of the, the uh, cabinet. So the containers were on the bottom. My husband built me a shelf uh, partway up that was high enough to clear the containers that had a notch cut out of the middle of it, and that's where the dosing pump sat so that the dosing tubes could run down, hang down in the notch. And then we drilled holes from that side through the cabinet wall so that the dosing tubes could go through. 
And then I took them through there across the top of the ATO container and took them down onto the glass that's beside, like that forms the side of the sump. And that's where they dripped in, was right where the really high flow is that comes down from the overflow and out the, um, out the overflow cups. The, I used filter cups. I didn't use filter socks. So the dosing chemicals went into a high flow area. Um, I did my best to test once a week. And I have three or four notebooks where I wrote everything down every single day before I got the Aquarimate um, phone app. And that's where I record all my stuff now. So you, you, you essentially <clears throat> use uh, test kits and you record the values you're getting from those t test kits and just electronically adding it to yeah. a logbook. Well, I used the notebooks for probably um, a year and a half, and then I switched. So once I switched to the phone app, I didn't use the written logs anymore. Uh, but the reason I did that was because my dosing schedule was so stupidly complex for additives. It was like, this thing gets added once every three days. So I would write it down every three days. Every page was a day. And so every third page, I would write so much of this. And then this one gets every other day. Do the same thing. This one is once a week. Do the same thing. This one is once a week, but not on the same day as the first one. <laughs> it was... It was got a little uh, squ got a little there. Oh, not not a little. <laughs> so, <laughs> a have, do do you uh, have you used a controller? Have you used a controller? Do you plan to use a controller? No. I have never used a controller. I, if I do use a controller, it'll probably be strictly for monitoring, so that I know what's going on at any given time. And I don't even. I had a cam or a Wi-Fi doser. And it let me down because I couldn't access the Wi-Fi. And if you can't access the Wi-Fi, you can't use it. You can't make any right. changes. And so that kind of taught me a lesson about relying too much on Wi-Fi because at any given time, if the Wi-Fi goes down, what do you do? You don't have an, there, there, is, there isn't a redundancy for that unless you have that redundancy within your type of equipment. So I don't know what I'm going to do in terms of a controller other than monitoring only. When it comes to dosing, I want buttons I can push <laughs> so that no matter what happens, if those buttons wear out, okay, I'll buy another unit if I can't repair them. But at least I have buttons I can push. Have you thought about a, um, an alkalinity monitor to, um, to help measure that parameter? Um, yes, yes, definitely. That is one for sure that I'll take care of that way. Um, I, I kind of favor GHL, and a lot of that has to do with um, Jim Graham, Telegram's information, because I totally agree with him. If it's repairable, that's a huge advantage rather than having to throw something away. And a lot of them are not repairable, but if you can take a part out and then put a part back in, thanks to Dave's nanotanks, I am no longer afraid to undo screws and see what's inside. <laughs> Yeah, well, you have to undo screws to get inside the uh, um, the Proflux because of the um, the expansion cards. If you want to um, have some expandability, which is a really cool feature. I mean, I'm I'm a I'm a GHL mm -hmm. fanboy myself, and I had, when I had Jim on the show last week, we uh, we dug into a lot of that stuff, and and um, yeah, you know, I I certainly have have migrated more and more over the years to 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 technology, but I don't like to lean on it 
too heavily because I, I think Me that um, the more moving parts that you have, then the chances are that something can go wrong. But I'm not knocking people that, that um, you know, mm -hmm. really get, um, you know, into a lot of things that are tied into controller and automation. I think that's, that's great. And it, it does make things easier, easier, I'm assuming, in terms of the, uh, the aquarium. But, you know, I consider myself old school, so I, I, I do what I think is um, necessary. I do what I think will help pre prevent disasters. But I, I do mm -hmm. also like to have a certain amount of control over certain things myself, too. Mm -hmm. I just feel like if there's any possibility <clears throat> that user error could create a catastrophe, <clears throat> then I don't want that piece of equipment. And I've seen too many stories. Uh, I mean, don't get me wrong. I've done research on these things periodically over the years, and I've seen them evolve. And I've seen so many stories of somebody just having the wrong position for a switch on or off while something else was going on, not realizing it was a problem until they had a catastrophe. And if user error can open the door to that, then I'm looking for something else. Or I'm looking for something simpler, maybe. Right. Because monitoring, to me, the, the, the time that testing takes is probably the biggest deterrent for people. So if I can get auto-testing and then get the data and be reasonably <laughs> sure that it's accurate based on periodic calibration and, and comparisons to traditional testing methods, then I can look at the data and make my decision about what I'm going to do. I... I <laughs> I'm fond of saying I am the apex <laughs> because people always say, are you going to get an apex? No, I am the <laughs> apex. <laughs> exactly. So, uh, um, so speaking of testing, Scott McMillan is asking what test kits you use. Um, I use the HANA for alkalinity and phosphate and calcium, mm -hmm. and I use Salifert for magnesium and what's the other one? Magnesium? Well, maybe it is just magnesium. Nitrate. That's the other one. Um, I used to test potassium regularly, but I've gotten away from that. And I'm, I more look at my tank, and when I see my red Monty's getting a little bit of pale um, skin, then I just put in, a, you know, a small dose of potassium a couple times, you know, a couple days in a row for maybe <clears throat> once or twice. Yeah. So I, I basically those five. Yeah, I, um, I use Salifert test kits for right now for nitrate for calcium and magnesium and uh, I use a Milwaukee um, test kit for for phosphate but um, I can't wait for the old GHL ion ion director to come out that's gonna be the mm -hmm. bomb um, Scott Mc I was saving I was saving my money for Mindstream ah, Mindstream. and I'm really 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 sad that it's it's gone away or Maybe someone else has taken on the technology and is looking to actually make it um, viable. But that, to me, was was the the bomb. You put the disc in, you shut the door. It does its job. It tells you what's going on. Next month, you take that disc out, put a new one in. You know, I wasn't digging their uh, subscription price though. The monthly subscription um, price, I thought that was. Uh, I don't like to pay even like five dollars a month for something. So, and uh, I don't know what they were gonna. <laughs> yeah. I think they were gonna charge yeah. like twenty five bucks or so. I, I can't remember what the monthly uh, subscription fee was, but that was kind of, to me, a bit of a barrier. Um, yeah. Well, to to me, it wasn't the cost so much as 
if something were to happen to the company, you'd have this useless paperweight in your tank that there was no way you could ever uh, get operating again because if they went out of business or had issues or the postal service went down or who knows, right? So many things oh, can happen. Oh, for sure. And that to me was the big drawback because it, this is an expensive hobby. And my, my rationalization of that was, well, my time is worth something. So if this can save me time and I can get accurate data that I can then use to make my decisions, then I, I can justify that cost. So we got a little debate going on here in the chat between uh, some folks in terms of GHL versus Apex. Um, great bearded reef. Scott, uh, GHL is where it's at. Pretty straightforward setting up and configuring. I agree with that. Best part is no coding like Neptune. I, I agree with that great uh, bearded reef. I think uh, I made the transition to, I actually got a video coming out about this uh, next week, but I, I transitioned from, from Apex to GHL a few years ago, and uh, it was definitely a lot of uh, learning involved, switching those platforms. So it was, uh, it was, um, it was not easy, but now that I'm used to it, it uh, there's no looking back in, in my mind. And yes, uh, I saw a comment before in terms of German-made products. You can't really go wrong with German-made products. So it's GHL stuff is very well engineered, but um, hey, full disclosure, I uh, I do sell the stuff, and I am a fanboy, so I am a little biased, but uh, mm -hmm. I only like you know recommend stuff that I that I use myself. So I'm gonna I'm gonna throw that caveat out well, there. <laughs> well, for me as a consumer, what matters sure is quality equipment. You want something that's going to be reliable. But if something does go wrong, you also want to know that there's customer service backup. And in the early days, I had read a lot of negative stuff about GHL customer service backup. But my understanding is now that's improved, along with their user interface and other things. So what that tells me is they looked at that and they took the feedback on board and they took steps to fix the problems that they that were being identified. And I haven't seen that with some of the other manufacturers. I also think a lot of the equipment is overpriced for what it is. And um, that's just me. I Varian says, um, I'm cheap. Well, Varian says, love Cindy's message that you don't need tons of uh, complex equipment to succeed. The hobby is pricey, but you don't need a lot of bucks to succeed. And that is very true. There's a lot of tanks out there that um, run into mm -hmm. basic stock tank uh, or sump what have you and and nothing fancy and you just stick to the to the you know the tried and true <clears throat> um, principles of reef keeping in terms of keeping things stable and i always say keep yep. things simple um and, mm -hmm. and that stuff will win out well i mean having said that i am a little bit well known for weird little projects just to tackle one specific problem, <laughs> what I go through, like my little mini reactor in my sump, and also the sump churn that I set up so that detritus wouldn't settle around my return pump. Just little things like that that um, work at the time, but long-term aren't great ideas because they do require maintenance. So it's, it's all part of the learning curve. It's all part of going, geez, why does that happen? What can I do to stop it? coming up with a solution, working with it for a while, and then going, oh, well, I guess that wasn't the right thing to do after all. So, Cindy, um, let's, let's talk about nutrient export because, um, you know, in your, in your Mollywood tank, you know, we saw a bunch of uh, bubble, bubble algae 
What, what's, um, yep. what, how do you typically tackle those sorts of issues in terms of problematic algae? Um, interesting you should ask that because I, I am working on a video about algae disappearing from the 90 and how that happened. My biggest preference is for natural solutions. So in the case of the bubble algae in Mollywood, uh, the only place you can find that now is in the back section of the tank attached to the upper edges and corners where there's water flow and on top of some filter, um, some nitrate reducing bio sponges that I have. And so I pick that stuff off regularly and I actually put it back in the tank because I have emerald crabs yep. in there and they decimated the yep. bubble algae. Um, also peppermint shrimp for things like yep. Aptasia. I've always had good luck Same with here. that. And, and I think my general impression, and there are probably exceptions to this because there always are, my general impression that is that people don't have the patience or aren't willing to mm -hmm. wait out the time it takes for natural solutions to work. Because the algae I was talking about in the 90, the growth got ridiculous after I had my mass fish death because I lost my Tomini Tang and my Fox Face. There were two large herbivores that kept that in check. I didn't realize that until two weeks later when everything was covered in turf algae. So I was trying to figure out ways to solve this problem. Someone suggested a sea urchin in one of my uh, video comments. So I went and I got a sea urchin. Best thing I could have ever done. Then I got a, a yellow Tang the second best thing I could have ever done, and a lawnmower blenny. Now I have zero algae in that tank. And I'm having to feed the tang and the blenny and the urchin with nori. Oh, really? Or with, actually, it's it's two little fishy sea veggies that I use on clips. And it's the natural way to have do Have you ever, um, go ahead. Uh, oh, I was going to say the fox face used to keep the bubble algae in check. There wasn't much in there because I'm sure there wasn't much to begin with, but I put a couple of emerald crabs in there as well, and there's none now. Have you ever had to um, battle bryopsis? Yeah. Bryopsis? Yes. And I, I've used fluconazole four times over probably one, two, three yeah. tanks. I've never used fluconazole in the 90. Uh, I used it in my 29-gallon cube. Did it work? And I, it did. It did. Did did. And I used it twice in the Red Sea tank. No, three times in the Red Sea tank. Did did you do um, one treatment or two treatments? One Just treatment. One. I I tried um I tried that. Oh man, it must have been six months ago, or eight ten months ago, in um in my frag tank and I used fluconazole and it knocked it out for a few months, but it came back. But, um, I was able to kind of get rid of the, uh, just, um, removing the egg crate, cleaning that, and then just being good in terms of the, uh, the nutrients in that system. And so, uh, you know, knock on wood, no bryopsis, but that's, I, I would have to say that's yeah. probably the toughest nuisance algae to get mm -hmm. rid of in terms of all the stuff that I've battled yeah. over the years. I think everything else that you've talked about, there's like natural predators for, 
which is great, but there's really no natural predator for the, uh, for the bryopsis, and I think that's why folks just kind of turn to the uh, fluconazole for that, even though I don't like to put chemicals in my tank yeah. either. It was a last resort for me, and the very first time I used it, um, the, the, the picture that I showed in my video is of one of my turbo snails that's, that's got an inch and a half of this bryopsis algae all over his shell. I mean, it makes him the size of an orange as he's crawling around. <laughs> and I just thought, oh, i got to do something about that. Because, I mean, you, you can pick the snail out and pick the algae off, but it's just going to grow again. Yeah. And so I made the decision after reading up on the mechanism by which it works. That That's kind of my <clears throat> approach with chemicals. I want to know how they work, what, what the mechanism is where... They can interrupt a life cycle, or do they out and out kill the cells, or, you know, uh, wh whatever the mechanism is, and whether I'm willing to risk that in my system, what other implications it might have on other fauna that are in the system. Because it never just kills one thing. It's kind of like when we take antibiotics. You know, we... we kill bacteria that might be making us ill but we also kill good bacteria right you don't you and just you don't know same. no so, so i'm not sure if you uh, you 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 pointed this out or not but what what do you use in terms of uh, just your regular nutrient um, export do you have a re refugium do you use um, gfo do you have a an algae scrubber protein skimming, water changes? What, what are your um, tools in terms of just keeping nutrients in check? Uh, in the Red Sea tank, I ran an algae scrubber for a very long time. I also have always had catamorpha in my tanks. And right now in the 90, I do have catamorpha, but it's housed in a fish breeder box that I've got stuck to the back glass on an angle so that there can be water flow in it. Um, and I, I split that thing in half about every two weeks. It grows like crazy. And luckily I haven't had it pop up anywhere else in the tank. Um, same in Mollywood. I have some catamorpha in a breeder box on the side glass just to help with the nutrient export. Um, I've never used GFO. I have used Fosgard and other phosphate removal products, but I've never used GFO. Stuff scares me. When you read about what happens when you use it, and if you miscalculate the quantity, you can strip the water too quickly, then you can't really take it out with cause, without causing other problems, bacterial blooms or whatever, unless I'm thinking of bio pellets. It's bio pellets. I would never use bio pellets. They really scare me. Um, I just feel like I don't have enough expertise to know what's what to look for as far as signs go and how to stop that train before it wrecks everything. I, uh, I am with you. I, um, I used to use GFO, and I just really didn't know how to use it. You know, I, I would, I would um, use too much of it, and then I would see some fading of the corals. So it, it just, and, and it's also, not only is it binding phosphate, but it's binding other valuable trace elements, I believe, and and, and I think that's problematic. So, yeah, I, I, um, the last few years I've been using both a, uh, an algae reactor as well as a, a refugium. I've never used a, an algae scrubber. I want to try one just so I have that experience. 
and and can compare it. I, you know, I think in terms of the difference between an algae reactor and a refugium, the uh, the algae reactor, the arid um, algae reactor that I have, I'm using that on my new tank build. It's very very efficient. I love the fact that it um, you know is uh, external and 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 um, you can keep the the, the Cato um, confined to that uh, chamber. Mm -hmm. The uh, the refugium works well too for me, but I don't like the mess in in the uh, in the mm -hmm. tank, and I also get a lot of bleeding of the light. And I know that there's things that you can do to cut down on the bleeding of the light in the uh, refugium, but um, yeah, so I, I I find both to be very effective methods, and I am a big fan of going natural in terms of the um, the nutrient export as well. Mm -hmm. So, Cindy, talk to us about the new uh, tank build. It's it's always exciting to to start a new tank. You you got a three hundred gallon tank that uh, is uh, is on the way, right? It, not, not quite yet. yet. We're still finalizing. No, we're still finalizing drawings for the stand, and the dimensions are going to be sixty by sixty six, sixty across by sixty six front to back. So, all like a peninsula, just barely a peninsula. By 21 inches deep. So say that again. Your your dimensions and are how long and wide? It's going to be 60 wide by 66 from the front oh, to the wow. back. And then 21 inches high. So almost. That's interesting. So what are you doing in terms of bracing? That's a pretty wide tank. Are you going to have some cross bracing on that? Are you going to have euro bracing? It'll be a euro brace top and bottom. Okay. And I've asked for ar armored glass seams okay. as well. Uh, five eighths inch glass, and it'll just be ordinary glass. It's not going to be low iron. It's an external coast to coast overflow, and there will be three drain line, three overflow lines going down, and then two return lines coming up. Coming up, meeting uh, through the and, bottom. <clears throat> yeah, through from the basement. Okay. Okay. Um, back up into the overflow, uh, and up and through return nozzles. Um, the sump is composed of stock tanks. There are two 100-gallon Rubbermaid stock tanks, one 150-gallon, and a shallow 50-gallon. And I'll have what I call my trash can overflow, where the overflow pipes are going to go down into a trash can that's going to be sitting in the shallow 50. And that's where I'm going to put filter floss and things like that. That'll be the first point of contact for mechanical filtration. Then the water's going to percolate out of the trash can. We haven't quite decided yet whether we're going to cut vertical slots or drill a whole bunch of holes, not really sure yet, um, into the shallow 50. And in the shallow 50, I'm going to have all of my biomedia that I'm going to pull out of the canisters are going to be housed in there. <clears throat> I'm seriously thinking about putting Cato in mm. there and putting a light over it because that's probably going to be a nutrient-rich area. <clears throat> then the water's going to go down from that tank through like through a bulkhead out <clears throat> the side and down and curl back underneath that tank because that tank is above the back half of the 150. So the water will shoot into the back of the 150 and I'll have power heads there to push it forward again and I'm going to hang a light over that spot and create another refugium oh, wow. area. But I haven't quite finalized what exactly I'm going to have there. <clears throat> I'm also thinking that that's the place for 
um, a manifold system just run on a one of the JBO pumps I have to run the algae scrubber, UV sterilizer, to have capability to add reactors if I decide that's what I'm going to do. Um, I am planning to run a calcium reactor, and I'm just slowly assembling all the bits and pieces to, uh, to have that up and running. Um, so the water will then go out of the 150 into the first 100, and there's going to be nothing in there unless I put my skimmer in there. That's, that's a possibility we have to look at yet. But that's what I'm going to use for water changes. So the plumbing will be set up so that the water can go from the 150 to the second 100 and bypass the first 100. So the 100 can be pumped out, then the water pumped back in again, and then the flow restored to add it to the system. And then the final 100 is where it will essentially be the return chamber, except my pumps will be external. There'll be two return pumps. And then that final chamber will be the one with the constant water level where I'll put my ATO. And we're doing radiant heating. So the radiant heating coil will rest in that final return chamber because that's right next to where the water's going to go back up to the tank. Is, is this, your, uh, is this your, your, like your dream tank? It sounds like you've really thought a lot about this tank and planned it out really, really well. Is this, uh, this, this, yeah. this is it? Well, I don't think I will ever do a tank again. And I, that's why this one, we're just basically looking at everything that pops into my head <laughs> to see what the logistics are of accomplishing it. And logistics include money, because obviously <clears throat> wanting to have natural light coming into my tank is one of the things I would love to be able to do. And we had thought of accomplishing that by using, you know, the sonar tubes yeah. you can put or yeah. solar tubes. We had thought of doing that, but the way our house is built, that angle of the roof is on the north side. So I wouldn't ever really get sunlight into a tank. I, so there's no point yeah, in doing that. Yeah, I think that. even if you were able to get sunlight in your tank for a good chunk of the day, you would still need supplemental lighting no matter what. What's, so what are you thinking about in terms Definitely. of lighting for that tank? Oh, I have my Oh, you lights. got your lights. <laughs> The lights came last week. I have the uh, Orifec Atlantic V4 Gen 2s. I have two of them. And so they'll be going um, side to side, one at the back and one at the front, like evenly spaced. And then I have two OR2 120s, which are the bar lights from Orifec. And they're 47 inches long, 47 or 48. And they will go at the sides of the tank um, from front to back. And then I have two of Jim's uh, favorite cheapo AliExpress 48-inch <laughs> light bars. I'm, I'm afraid to order from those guys. I don't know. But uh, <laughs> have you had good experiences with AliExpress? Okay. Oh, yeah. Except that if you have to return something, yeah, what do you, what are you gonna do? process a refund. Well, you know, you can. Um, you can get a refund. Usually with me, it happened when stuff never arrived. So it See, that's what scares me. Or it just got lost, right? So, well, they'll do a refund for you because they do have that protection. However, I noticed it was kind of strange that about three weeks after any refund, my credit card would be hacked. Oof. So that sort of took me away from them for many years, and I only went back <laughs> to buy the bar lights that Jim was talking about. 
And so those two are going at the front and the back. So I'll have a perimeter of bar lights and then the two Atlantics in the center. Wow. Um, and so hopefully the Euro bracing will be, I'll be able to position the lights so that I'm not having to go down through the Euro bracing because it's going to be about four inches wide, but we'll have to see. Man, oh man, I didn't realize how much I think about this. I must think about it a lot if I'm, you know, if it's that that well, you know, developed. So my husband's been working in the basement, getting the water station together with a 125-gallon uh, water tank to store RODI and two 65-gallon tanks with legs for salt mixing. And uh, that's right close to where we've got the four stock tanks set up. And they're essentially, the flow will be by gravity. So the return tank is only a few inches off the floor. The second one, the, the first 100 is a little higher. The 150 is a little higher. And then, of course, the shallow 50 is right at the top. Well, hopefully you're going to be um, capturing all this on your channel because I, uh, I'm not completely envisioning what you're talking about. And I think that um, it'll be a lot easier to understand via the, uh, via the video platform that we have yeah. here so yes, i'm sure exactly. well we're calling it crazy town crazy reef. town reef so crazy town reef so that should give you an idea of um the things we're going to be doing and, and that's basically just touches the surface of of the kinds of um things that we're going to be setting up for this tank so is, is, it's going to be a we'll mixed see. reef yes yes i love a mixed reef i've always always had a mixed reef although at one point i had a 29 gallon cube that was all soft corals and a 20 gallon with a sump that was hard corals uh, but ultimately i put those back together again when i had the uh, xl425 so so cindy we're uh, we're kind of getting near the end of our time here i don't want to keep you um too much longer just um in in terms of all your experience and what you've learned over the years what what would be like three tips that you would provide somebody that kind of wants to take it to the next level in reef keeping, you know, up their game a little bit. What, what uh, are three important things in terms of advice you'd like to pass along to those folks? Um, as a foundation, you have to be patient and be willing to wait until you can do what's going to be right for your system. If you rush, it never pays off. That would be tip number one. Um, tip number two would be make sure you're on top of water quality and that you understand what it takes to change your water parameters if you have to make changes. And that's where patience ties in as well because you can't make a lot of these changes too quickly. You have to be ready to take the time to allow things to evolve in response to your changes. So that's where the testing ha has to happen. Uh, you you can't really progress unless you're willing to put the time and money into testing and then understand what to do with your results. Um, I don't believe in chasing numbers, but stability involves knowing the numbers and being able to maintain them on a very basic level. And then the third tip would be, I guess it also ties in with patients, but there's nothing wrong with being ambitious when it comes to trying to keep coral that might be considered expert level or, or 
difficult or whatever. Mm-hmm. Every, everybody tries it. But I would go slow in that regard as well because it's not just money that it costs you. If it's the type of coral that isn't propagated in captivity, it's actually marine life that it's costing you. Because those things, when they die, they can't be replaced. If, if we have, I mean, we all know that there, there are all kinds of corals out there that can be fragged and propagated. And there are others that just can't. So if, if you want those things, which, which is what I love, I love the solitary polyp corals, the cinerinas and the scolimias and all of those. And it took me a long time to even try one because I didn't want to yeah. kill it. So that would be the third thing. Be, be sort of realistic in, in how you approach the livestock you keep so that you stand a chance of keeping Responsible reef keeping. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And I mean, I'm not, I'm not preaching and telling people what to do. I'm just saying if you can think that way, you're more likely to be successful. Yeah, Greg Carroll said great tip, Cindy. Thanks, Greg. Um, Rapid-fire questions. Favorite Uh-oh. fish? Pink tail triggerfish. Ooh. Okay, cool. Lo- cool. Love those fish. Or pyramid butterflies. Oh, I just other. added four yeah. to my new tank. I love those fish. Yeah, oh, did I was, you? It was kind of hard to find. TSM Aquatics had them yeah. so I, in New Jersey. I, I, they did a great job in terms of the shipping. Um, yeah. Favorite LPS coral? The heliofungia. Oh, what's what? What is what Love is that? that thing? It's a long ten. Oh, okay, plate coral. I've never had a plate coral. I had one, and that I believe was the only casualty of the fluconazole mm. treatment. It was thriving, and within forty-eight hours of the fluconazole, it had all turned gray and shriveled up. And I think it's because fluconazole is a fungicide. And I, I know that the heliofungia isn't a fungus, but you know what I mean? I, I don't know. It was the only coral yeah, that died. Yeah, and Sane had asked the question a while ago, is fluconazole reef safe? And it, and it pretty much is reef safe. Yeah, I would say so. But if I were to treat again with fluconazole and I had any plate corals, I would remove them and put them and somewhere And you also else. have to follow certain protocols with that treatment in terms of... Um, Activated carbon after it's over, water changes, that sort of thing, right? Yeah. yeah. And that's the other maybe tip number four. Follow the directions. <laughs> read the read the directions. Please. Yeah, that's, that's a very good tip. <laughs> All right, last uh, rapid-fire question. Favorite SPS coral? Um, I don't really have a favorite yet. I haven't kept a okay. lot of them. I... I do have a couple that I've named myself because they had no names and I got them at my LFS and they came from the Caribbean. And so of those, I would have to say the RG Midnight Firefly. Never heard of that. Because, no, you haven't. (laughs) I'm the only one who has it. (laughs) It's deep green. It's fast growing. And the deep green, emerald green base grows into a, a royal blue, which becomes Ooh. purple, and the tips are bright yellow. And it does have thready polyps that come out after dark, and uh, it's it's very very hardy. And fast I'll have growing. to get a frag of that one. So, 
<laughs> yep, yep. Someday, if we can ever get them across borders. Yeah, for sure. So, uh, so Cindy, any uh, any final thoughts here? I've really enjoyed. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. It's uh, yeah, it, it surprised me. I was, as you know, I was nervous before we started, but uh, you're a great host because. You made me feel relaxed. So hey, it's just a that. conversation between you and I, and just fielding a bunch yep. of uh, questions here. It's it, these, you know, these live streams are a lot of fun. You know, it's just uh, it's it's great to yep. have this kind of platform, yeah. and and uh, you know, like we said, mm -hmm. I think uh, before the show, we um, we enjoyed doing them. Did we say that during the show? I can't remember. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I can't remember. But uh, anyway, listen. Cindy, thank you so much for uh, for being a guest and taking the time. I know um, things have been pretty nutty with you in terms of the move and and uh, taking care of all those tanks. So that's that is not an easy job. So I just want to say uh, thanks for being on the show. Thank you for having me. It was great. And hi to everybody in the chat. And uh, I hope maybe to see you guys sometimes if you've never run across my live stream. If I yeah, can do a plug, plug away. Saturday night. 9 p.m. Eastern, Saturday night, is just a safe, quiet place to uh, come and hang out with your reef-keeping friends. Yeah, uh, I'm going to check it out. So I'm, I'm going to do awesome. one last plug myself for my next show. It's, um, it's next Thursday, January 21st, and I've got Richard Ross, who's a, uh, a biologist and cool. a MACNA speaker. He's going to be a guest next week, so I'm really looking forward to that, and, and hopefully everybody will, uh, nice. will tune in for that. So until then, everybody be safe, be well. And um, we'll see you next time. Yep. Good night. Good night. night.